Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm your host, Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And joining me today is my co-host, Trina Tadaros. Welcome, Trina. Great to be here, Ben. Well, Trina, we got a few things to talk about today, but I, actually, I wanted to start with one of my personal passions. As you know, I like to read a lot of novels about zombies. And when it comes to zombies, the way you get away from them is you eventually make your way to Antarctica or some very, very cold climate where they can't get to us. But I'm not sure if that works with viruses. Apparently, they have no bounds. So tell us about a photo you recently saw about Mount Everest. Yeah, you know, I guess if you were to ask me, would I rather have zombies or a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2, I would pick zombies, I think, based on the pathogen's ability to reach every nook and cranny of the globe where humans are. So the Washington Post had a story recently about how the pandemic has reached Everest's base camp. And they published a photo, like you said, of base camp, tons of tents. It's climbing season for Everest. And apparently COVID-19 is up there. And folks are being shuttled down to Kathmandu to receive medical services because they're getting sick. And of course, if you are not normally living at this kind of altitude, you're already a little weakened from having to breathe the the thinner air. And so folks are perhaps more vulnerable to poorer outcomes from COVID-19. So there's reports of folks being sent down there and, and also being sent home, you know, back to their home countries because wow. they're quite ill. Yeah. Wow. So the virus has made its way all the way to Mount Everest. I guess the next question I'd have to ask is around what are the rules? I mean, do they have social distancing rules there as well? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So sort of unsurprisingly, you know, they had to rethink how they do the expeditions for the pandemic. And some expedition companies decided not to go. So this is according to the Washington Post story, and they just canceled their expeditions completely. But others decided to go. And what they did was they tried to create quarantine bubbles, kind of like what the NBA did, where you just keep everybody in that expedition together and keep them separated from other expeditions. Everyone wears masks, there's social distancing. But even with all of those protocols in place, there still has been reports of the virus spreading. So it's not easy, even on Everest, to keep a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2 from spreading person to person in between expeditions. I think that's been an issue we've been hearing about more and more around the world, especially those countries that don't have the vaccines like we're lucky enough to have in the U.S., that there's truly a very powerful second wave going on. So what are you seeing in terms of the numbers, for example, around Mount Everest? And what does that mean globally? So that's true. You know, I think Nepal is one of the countries that has seen a recent spike in cases. And in fact, you know, starting kind of early May, they've had a real exponential growth in cases. And so it's not that surprising that we're seeing the infection spread all the way up to Everest. It's not surprising at all. Also, just if we look back at previous pandemics, even like if you look back at like 1832, the cholera epidemic in the United States, that reached from Europe to the United States and Canada and then made its way. It kind of came through New York, East Coast, and then made its way to the South and the West, the very farthest reaches of the West, tiny little farms, tiny little hamlets, barely connected to everyone else. And yet, Collar was able to make its way all the way to every single nook and cranny, practically. And so it's not that surprising. We're such an interconnected world. 
even back in the 19th century, even back in the Middle Ages with the plague, these kinds of infections just spread very easily. And so we see that here with the climbers. So let's pivot from Nepal and from Everest and talk about the impact here at home in the United States and the impact in particular on provider jobs, which we've been sort of following since last April when the lockdowns happened and we had this real cataclysm in terms of jobs, provider jobs in particular in the United States. A lot of doctor's offices shed jobs hospitals, all kinds of parts of the U.S. health ecosystem shed jobs during that period of time. And so here we are, we just got the Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs report for April 2021, so a year later. And so Ben, what did we learn? What happened in this last jobs report? Well, Trina, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's important for us, you know, as we think about the health system to really track what's happening with jobs. And to your point, you know, what's been happening over the last year, U.S. providers shed a net of 4,000 jobs, but it's uneven in terms of how and where that's happening. So the story gets a little bit deeper. So for example, in terms of ambulatory services, those actually continue to grow with about 21,000 more jobs than previously. And that's to be expected, right? We've been trying to move the health system to more outpatient care, to more ambulatory care. So it makes sense that those jobs are growing and certainly coming back because that's where we want people to seek care in those lower cost settings and more convenient settings. But we also saw a loss of about 20,000 jobs in nursing care and community care for the elderly. Now, that is really a continuation of a, a longer-term decline. And as you've mentioned before, that's a troubling number to think about because what it means is the people that are most vulnerable are in facilities that actually may have an employment shortage. And so there's a real challenge around that because of that. And there's a lot of different ideas out there about why that may be happening. One of the big ones is that these are typically lower paid jobs. And so it can be harder to fill them. And as the economy is coming back, people may be making a choice for higher paid jobs. So it's something that I know you've been watching and we've been watching in the Health Research Institute and we'll continue to do that. Also, hospitals shrank by a net of about 6,000 jobs in April as well. And home health also lost some jobs. That was a little bit surprising to me on the home health side, simply because more care is moving into the home. And that's been a real focus. We have more technology that can allow that to happen. And certainly consumers keep telling us in consumer surveys that they would like to see more of their care happening closer to where they are in their home. The hospital job loss was also interesting to see. One of the things that we're going to be publishing, Trina, as you know, next month will be our behind the numbers report. We've got some really interesting numbers in terms of utilization and volume of services in terms of where we are now and what that may mean, especially some interesting numbers around the ER and volumes they're not coming back. So that could be some of the connection to some of those hospital jobs. So something we'll definitely keep watching. Well, Trina, I want to turn it back to you on an issue you've been following very closely and talking to our listeners about, which are the vaccines. But we actually have another issue around the vaccines, and that is, what about the rest of the world? Okay, I, I alluded to this earlier that we're lucky, right? We're in the U.S. and we have access to vaccines, but that's not always the case around the world, right? 
Yeah, yeah. That's one of the big, I would say not entirely unsurprising features of the pandemic is that the higher resource countries like the United States, like the UK, like the EU have quite a good supply of vaccine. And so we are sort of moving forward with vaccinating our populations. And and in particular, the United States, UK, Israel, really making headway. But lots of other nations that have fewer resources just don't have a lot of vaccine supply and have vaccinated very few people. And so in order to really put this pandemic to bed and go back to normal, we really need large percentages of almost every country's population to be vaccinated. And that is not happening right now. And so there's a lot of talk about how to make that happen. That's what exactly what I want to pick up on is how do you make that happen? And I think some of our listeners may not think about that in this way, but vaccines are essentially intellectual property, right? And so now we're seeing this debate about how to vaccinate the rest of the world move into a debate around intellectual property. Yeah. So the big news was that the Biden administration, the U.S. trade representative for the Biden administration indicated that they would support a waiver that would basically waive the obligations of member countries of the WTO, so that's the World Trade Organization, to implement certain sections of the TRIPS agreement, which kind of covers intellectual property protections. And so this all kind of dates back to October when South Africa and India asked the WTO to waive sections one, four, five, and seven of part two of the TRIPS agreement, and also to waive enforcement of those sections under part three of the TRIPS agreement. And this would relate to only products that are related to preventing, containing, or treating COVID-19. So this is beyond vaccines. They were asking about diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. And so if you look at what Section 1, 4, 5, and 7 of Part 2 of the TRIPS Agreement, it covers copyright and related rights, industrial designs, patents, protection of undisclosed information. And so what this overall says is that if the WTO decided to waive this, then you would have drug makers in member countries able to basically go and try to make vaccines that are protected right now under these intellectual property rights. And so what we could see is that happening. Now, I will say that the likelihood of this happening anytime soon is very small. You have to get all member countries to agree. It has to be unanimous to do such a waiver. So you've got 164 countries that are members that have to agree. So you have to have unanimity. And you also have to agree on something. And so the negotiations for an agreement about a waiver could take months and months and months, even if everyone was on board. And so the director general of the WTO set a December deadline to come up with an agreement. So that just kind of gives you a sense of the timing. Mm -hmm. This is not about starting to make vaccines tomorrow. Beyond that, even if the waiver is able to be made, you really have other rate determining steps in there. So actually, that's what I wanted to ask about, Trina, is about the waiver. And let's just say, pardon the pun here, but let's say we could wave a magic wand and get these waivers immediately. And I know you've already said that there's a long timeline for that. But let's just say that were to happen as a thought experiment. Does that solve the issue? Or are analysts saying, wait a minute, there's something else there that's going to make it a challenge to get these vaccines out. It, there's a lot that's a challenge. So even if we were able to wave a magic wand, I love your your pun, it, it won't turn on vaccine making overnight in these countries. Manufacturing is a critical barrier. 
There's no excess mRNA manufacturing capacity in the world. Standing up manufacturing facilities to make the other vaccines is not simple either. Expertise is scarce. The raw ingredients are scarce. The production elements are scarce. Ancillary supplies like glass vials for the vaccines are scarce. In fact, the glass is made from sand, special sand that is scarce. So all of this would have to kind of come together and this will not happen overnight. Just being able to do it because the intellectual properties have been waived, that is one small step. The rest of it is really difficult. So I think that we're looking at even if everything kind of comes together and there's a waiver that is negotiated quickly, we're really looking at 2023 or beyond before we'll get any kind of additional vaccines in these countries being made under this waiver, if at all. One of our partners who works on vaccines made the point that there are no generic vaccines, and that's because it's really hard to make vaccines. And so it's not a simple, small molecule kind of product that can be made more easily. It is a difficult, tricky kind of product that is not simple. And so we'll see what happens, but I don't think this is a short-term solution to what is going on now where different countries are trying to increase the supply. I don't think this will address it in the short term. Well, I think that's a great example of there's often more than meets the eye. And so on the surface, it looks like a simple policy issue, an intellectual property issue regarding policy, but then you quickly get to the science and technology and it gets complicated quick. But speaking of that science and technology, we've been covering the vaccinations in the U.S. How are we looking right now in terms of doses being administered each day? Yeah, we're down. We're down in the United States. We were up over 3 million doses a day back in April, sort of beginning-ish of April, climbing, climbing. And then we have really fallen down to about, I think the last I looked, it was around under 2 million a day. And so there's a lot of reasons for this. Supply is not the reason. There's plenty of vaccine available. The reasons are perhaps that we have hit the point where most everyone who wants to get a vaccine has gotten one or has gotten one or two shots, or that everyone who is able to access the vaccine has, and that those who are left are either hesitant, resistant, or just can't get to a vaccination center easily. Thus, they have not. And so this next push, I think, of the Biden administration and and the states and the public health folks is to try to get the hesitant to get vaccinated, to turn the resistant into hesitant and then get them vaccinated and then to help people who have a hard time getting vaccinated because they can't get to a place or the hours don't work for them. Maybe perhaps they work several jobs and it's just impossible for them to get to a site easily to help them get vaccinated by making the vaccines more convenient. So this is that next phase. And we will see, I think, with the addition of 12 to 15 year olds, you know, another tranche of Americans who can get vaccinated, we might see this sort of swing upward again as parents who are eager to get their kids vaccinated go. But I think this next, you know, sort of phase will be uh, slower going because it involves a lot of long conversations and sort of more custom sort of campaigns to get people to we'll to go out and about get that. that. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. so let's talk about that. So we're in a situation where it is slowing. Actually, this morning I was listening to NPR and they ran a story about a state vaccine center that was providing free beer as an incentive for those to get vaccinated. So it sounds like we're into a time period of we've got to really think about innovation to get those 
other segments out of hesitancy and into getting vaccinated. And a lot of that might be incentives. Now, there's some data out there from a survey about what people are interested in that would make it more likely for them to get vaccinated. What does that survey tell us? Yeah, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey in April and they asked Americans who had not yet been vaccinated or who did not want to get vaccinated quickly, what would it take basically in some ways to to get them vaccinated? And so interestingly enough, the kind of top incentives were basically either convenience, so making it available at their doctor or wherever they normally go for health care. Also, if there were services that were not available to them, if they were not vaccinated. So basically, if you couldn't get on an airplane unless you were vaccinated, that would change their mind. If you couldn't go to a big sporting event or a concert unless you were vaccinated, that would change their mind or make them more likely. If you had to be vaccinated to travel overseas, then that would make them more likely. And then the other one was that if there was only one dose necessary, which we know one of the vaccines only requires one dose, that also was a good incentive. Less useful in terms of incentives for the really resistant folks who said, I'm definitely not going to get vaccinated, but pretty good for folks who are kind of in a wait and see mode was if their employer gave them paid time off or if you are actually paid to get vaccinated. I think that the Kaiser Family Foundation asked about a incentive of $200. If their employer paid them $200 to go get vaccinated, that changed a good number of folks' minds who were in the wait and see category. So there's a real menu of options. And I think it'll work from what this particular survey said. It will work with different groups differently. And they didn't ask about beer, but I do think beer would work with a good contingent of wait and seers for sure. Maybe that was just my wishful thinking, but I think we'll have to end it there today on incentives. And I think that does go back to a theme we've been talking about on this podcast, which is really understanding consumers and what makes them tick. That becomes so important. Trina, thank you again. You walked us through, really, actually, you walked us through all the way from the peak of Everest and what's happening in the farthest reaches of the world with the pandemic. I talked a bit about healthcare employment and what that may mean, and and especially some kind of troubling numbers with our long-term care facilities. And then we talked about patent waivers and actually what the real issue is in terms of some of the challenges of getting vaccines started in other places. And of course, we ended with our vaccine count and what's happening right here. So thank you, Trina. My pleasure. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.